0: Almighty God, we give You thanks. We thank You for who You are, the eternal God of love and wisdom and righteousness. We thank You for all Your wonderful works, for the beauty of Your creation, the starry heavens above, the rolling seas below, the beauty of mountains and meadows, the wondrous variety of animal and plant life, the stunning array of colors and tastes and sounds with which You have filled Your world. We thank You for friends and family and for feasting. We thank You for the Gospel, for the Lord Jesus Christ, Your eternal Son, the Word made flesh, for His death and resurrection and ascension and present reign, which secure our salvation from sin. We thank You for the Holy Spirit, whom You have poured out on us to form us into the church, to make us faithful and fruitful followers of Christ, To equip us with gifts for mission and ministry. To assure us of your love in our hearts. And on this, O Lord, the first day of Advent season, we thank you for being the promise-making and promise-keeping God. We thank you that you are God who is faithful to thousands of generations. For, Lord, your faithfulness fills us with hope, a secure hope. For it is a hope rooted in what has already been accomplished. We thank You, O God, that Christ has come and will come again. And so during this Advent season, we ask You, O Lord, to kindle afresh in our hearts hope in Christ, that we might be filled with joy as we trust in Him. May the light of His glory arise and shine in our hearts and through our hearts into the world. This we pray in His name. Amen. Let's pray together.
1: Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that He is the Word made flesh, the light that has come into the darkness, and that the darkness could not overcome it. We thank You for the great coming of our Lord, and we pray that as we celebrate this season together and look forward to celebrating His birth, that You would fill our hearts with appropriate joy and thanksgiving in all Your gifts to us, especially in the gift of Your Son, Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. As Pastor Lusk has already mentioned, we're entering the season of Advent this morning. And that's the season during which we celebrate the coming of the Lord in human flesh. Advent means arrival or coming. And the advent of the Son of God in human flesh is not the first advent of God. As Pastor Lusk pointed out in his comments at the beginning of the service today, God comes in many portions and in many ways. Throughout the centuries, from the very beginning of creation, God who is in heaven, God who is exalted, doesn't stay at a distance from his creation. The creation doesn't exist except by his advent, by his coming near. He comes near to the earth to form Adam from the dust and to breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. He comes again after Adam has sinned to pronounce judgment against Adam and to cast him out of the garden. After the nations have fallen at Babel, he comes again to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees and calls him out of Ur. He comes again and cuts covenant with him. He comes again and he makes a covenant in the sign of circumcision. He comes to Israel in Egypt to deliver them from bondage. And he leads them through the wilderness. And he comes as the captain of the Lord's host to lead them into the land and to conquer the land so that he can give them the land that he promised to Abraham. He comes to Samuel and he comes to David. He comes in judgment against Israel when they pollute the land and need to be cast out. And then he comes again while they're again in bondage. And he stirs up the heart of Cyrus so they come again out of bondage in a new Exodus. God has come again and again to his people. The whole story of the Bible is the story of a series of advents. But there's been nothing like this before. In all the comings of God, He has never come in flesh. What might that mean? Has God never come visibly? He did come visibly. He came and ate with Abram outside Abram's tent. He came in smoke and fire on Sinai. Has God never come tangibly so you could touch Him? He was tangible enough for Jacob to wrestle with at Peniel. Coming in the flesh isn't simply coming in human form. It isn't simply coming in a body. God has done that before, but He's never before come in flesh. He has appeared as a man, but He's never arrived and come living a human life. He's entered human life, but before the Word became flesh, He never actually lived a human life. He ate and drank with Abram outside of his tent. But he didn't need to eat and drink. When he comes in the flesh, he does. And when he comes in the flesh, the word who invented human language has to learn human language. The word who is is obedience to the Father. That's what it means to be son, is to be obedient to the Father. But this son who is obedience to the Father... Learns obedience by what he suffers. God has come in many ways, many times to his people, but never before has he come in this way. Living a human life. Living human life from within. Not just coming in as a temporary spectator of human life, but entering human life fully. Being conceived, being born, growing up, learning, suffering. And this is what John is getting at at the beginning of his Gospel when he tells us that the Word of God became flesh. The Word who was the eternal Word of the Father. The Word who was with God and was God. The Word who spoke the world into existence. Through Him all things were made, and there is nothing made that has been made apart from Him. In Him is life. In Him is light. That Word became flesh. But why does John use the word flesh to describe this? If we were using language to describe what has happened in the Incarnation, when we do that in our creeds, we use other terminology very commonly to explain what this means. The Word of God came in human nature. The Word of God became a man. The Word of God lived a human life. But that's not what John says. John uses a very specific phrase, a very, very specific term to describe this particular coming of God. This particular coming of God is a coming in the flesh. And in the Bible, the word flesh has all kinds of connotations that throw light on what it means for God to come near to us in this fashion. To speak of flesh is to speak of human weakness and vulnerability. To speak of flesh is to speak of human mortality. To say that we are flesh is to say that we die. To speak of human flesh is to speak of violence and to speak of sin. Jesus, the Word of God, comes in the flesh in all of those senses. We have to make qualifications, obviously, but he comes in the flesh in all of those senses. Let me start with the beginning. What does it mean to be flesh? It means that we are weak, that we're frail, that we have limitations, that we're creatures. There are many things we might like to do that we can't physically do. We might like to be able to blast off from the earth and go up to visit the moon or visit Mars without a rocket ship. But we can't. We might, be able to, might, might like to be able to lift mountains and toss them off into the sea, but we can't do that. We're flesh. We might like to be able to never sleep if you're a small child. And then again, we might want to sleep forever, but we can't. Either one of those. We might want to get along without eating, but we can't. We're dependent on things coming from the outside. That's what it means to be flesh. And it's not just physical limitations. We are flesh all the way down, as it were. We're weak and we're limited in all our capacities. It's not simply our physical capacities, it's our mental capacities and our spiritual capacities. All of these are limited because we are creatures but to speak of flesh is not only to speak of the weakness of human nature it's also to speak of the vulnerability of human nature because you are flesh you are vulnerable to pain if somebody pricks you with a pin it hurts and you bleed if somebody cuts you with a knife you bleed if your brother slaps you it hurts We're vulnerable to pain. We're vulnerable to attacks from the outside because we are flesh. We're vulnerable to changes in weather. We can freeze. We can get heat exhaustion. Things that aren't under our control affect us. We're vulnerable to that because we are flesh. And again, this fleshliness goes all the way down. It's not simply our bodies that are vulnerable to disease and to harm and to pain. Our souls and our spirits too can be wounded or vulnerable to pain in those ways as well and when the word of god becomes flesh he becomes flesh in both of those senses to become flesh to become flesh means that the word the word of god who is the power of god becomes weak and he subjects himself to human weakness For the Word of God to become flesh means the Word of God becomes woundable. He's capable of being harmed. He's capable of attack. He's capable of bleeding. If you cut Him, He too will bleed. The God who created the world, the Word by whom the world was created, took flesh to become weak and to become woundable among us. That's a great mystery. How can the God who created the world take human flesh in that sense? How can the God who is power become weak? The God who is active become passive and vulnerable to his creatures? That's a great mystery, but I think John has something else in mind too when he says the Word became flesh. Because flesh is not simply a description of what we are as human beings, as creatures flesh also describes what we are as fallen creatures even before adam sinned if you cut him he would bleed if he stepped on a thorn it would hurt even unfallen adam unfallen unfallen adam was flesh in that sense he was limited he was vulnerable to harm but sin makes things all the more all the worse Adam was vulnerable, even unfallen, but after sin, death comes into the world, and the ultimate limitation comes into the world, and the ultimate vulnerability enters the world. After Adam's sin, it's not simply a matter of our limitations and our vulnerability to pain, it's also a fact, the fact that we die. The time that we have is limited. Our life itself is limited, not simply in uh, some particular ways, but our life as a whole, is limited. Before Adam sinned, he was vulnerable to pain and he could be harmed. He could suffer pain. After his fall, after sin, he will certainly be subject to the pain of death. And we all certainly will suffer death. To speak of flesh in the Bible is not simply to speak of our weakness and our vulnerabilities, to speak of our mortality. All flesh is grass, Isaiah says in one of the great Advent passages in the book of Isaiah. All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. You are flesh. You're going to die. You're like the flower of the field, you're like the grass that's going to grow up and then wither away. That's the fact of our current condition. And that is the kind of flesh that the Word of God takes to Himself. He enters a world under the dominion of sin and death. That's the way that Paul describes the condition of the world after Adam. Adam sinned, and by that one act of disobedience, sin became king. And when sin Becomes king. When sin reigns, death reigns along with it. And the Word didn't enter some kind of idealized world. He didn't come in a bubble that protected him from that. He didn't come as a spectator to a world under the dominion of sin and death. He became flesh. The God who is life subjected himself not just to weakness and limitation, not just to vulnerability, but to mortality. John is already anticipating at the beginning of his gospel, the end of his gospel. When he says the word became flesh, he's already anticipating the fact that the word of God is going to die. If he's flesh, that inevitably follows under fallen conditions. He not only becomes woundable, but the word becomes mortal and dwells among us. As we heard in our Old Testament lesson this morning, in Genesis 6, Flesh also carries moral connotations in the Bible. It's not just a description of creaturely limitation and vulnerability. It's not just a description of our mortality, the fact that we're going to die. To speak of human beings as flesh means that we are sinful, that we act according to the flesh. This is not true of Adam. It's not because he has a, you have a body that makes you uh, somebody with sinful flesh. Having a body itself, having material flesh, is not what makes you a sinner. But after Adam, all of us carry sinful flesh. It's not sinful for you to have a body, but it is sinful for you to trust in your own capacities. To trust in your own strength. It's not only sinful, it's rather silly. Think of how limited you are. You can't blast off to Mars. You can't lift mountains. You can't do whatever you like. You can't you can't even solve all the problems mentally that you would like to solve. You're limited in every particular way, and you're going to trust yourself to solve your problems. That's what the Bible it's one of the things the Bible means when it talks about sinful flesh. Woe to those who go down to Egypt, Isaiah says, and rely on horses and trust in chariots, for there are many, and in horsemen because they're very strong, but don't look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Trusting in horses and chariots is a form of trusting in flesh. Horses and chariots are flesh. They have lots of power, but their power is limited, like all flesh. Jeremiah pronounces a curse against those who trust in the flesh rather than trusting in the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. Our flesh becomes sinful flesh when we trust in it. But our flesh also becomes sinful flesh because we're focused on avoiding our vulnerability as flesh and maximizing our pleasure as flesh. This is one of the things Paul has in mind when he talks about the mind set on the flesh. What does it mean to live in a way that is according to flesh or if your mind is set on the flesh? It's not simply to have flesh. It's to make Your flesh, your highest priority, avoiding pain, fighting off off your vulnerabilities. It means maximizing your pleasure. Sinful flesh, I think, is above all in Scripture. Flesh is sinful because it's motivated and driven by fear of death. We're mortal. We're going to die. And living according to the flesh, having the mindset of the flesh, is letting the fear of death, The fear of death in all of its forms dominate your life. That's when flesh becomes sinful flesh. And you don't have to be cowering in fear of the day you're going to die to live in fear of death. If you're living in fear of any kind of loss, a loss of your nest egg, a loss of your achievements, a loss of reputation, that's a kind of death. And when you're living according to the flesh, you'll do anything to protect those assets, anything to protect the life that you've achieved for yourself. We you think of fear of death, and we might think of it as being kind of cowering, retiring, but it's not. Genesis 6 shows us that flesh expresses itself violently. The world is full of violence because all men are flesh. When we're, when we're vulnerable, we want to protect ourselves from pain. And we're willing to do almost anything to protect ourselves from that pain. Lash out against someone else. Frequently, most of the time, that doesn't mean physical pain. We're not under physical threat. We ourselves are not very often. Well, we're under all kinds of psychological and spiritual and emotional threats. We don't like to be blamed for things. That hurts us. That's part of living in the flesh is that we can be blamed, we can be accused of things. And so in order to protect ourselves, we lash out against those who are accusing us. We accuse back. We don't like our reputations damaged. Our reputation, our name is vulnerable. So when somebody insults us or somebody tarnishes our reputation, we lash out to protect our reputation and return insult for insult and accusation for accusation. When we're threatened... When we're somebody else's scapegoat. When somebody else is piling up all their sins on us, we want to reverse the process and make them our scapegoat so that we can drive them away. All those are expressions of flesh. And all of those are expressions of the fear of death. We don't want to be diminished. We don't want to experience loss. And so we lash out violently in self-protection. And so sinful flesh, flesh that is driven by fear of death and fear of loss, does its work. Flesh does the work of immorality and impurity and sensuality because it's seeking pleasure. Flesh does its work of enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. It does those things because it's seeking to protect itself from vulnerability, to protect itself against the attacks of might come. And those of you who are familiar with Galatians 5 know I was just quoting the works of the flesh that Paul lists out in Galatians 5. Those are all expressions of our desire for pleasure, our avoidance of pain, our fear of death. And if we're going to be saved, that has to be killed. If humanity is going to be saved, the flesh has to die. It has to be expunged from the world. That's what God did in the flood. All flesh is put to death. And a new creation comes uh, uh, through, through Noah. And that's what God is doing again when the Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes flesh fully in the sense that He's weak, human, limited. He comes fully in the flesh in the sense that He's vulnerable and mortal. But Paul says He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus comes and lives... A life in the flesh, but not a life according to the flesh. He comes in the flesh, but he doesn't have his mind set on the flesh. Instead of living according to the flesh, he comes in the flesh and lives a life according to the spirit, while still being fully in the flesh. He's fully vulnerable, fully mortal, fully subject to all the attacks and the concerns and the worries that we are. And yet he does not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit he doesn't accuse he becomes accused he doesn't scapegoat he becomes the scapegoat he doesn't kill when he's attacked either physically or psychologically as we so often do instead of course he is killed jesus lives a life of the spirit while fully in the flesh, with all of the limitations and all of the temptations that we're subject to. And in His death, it looks like the life of the Spirit has been put to death forever. It looks like flesh is won. It looks like death has triumphed over life, that flesh has triumphed over spirit, that darkness has triumphed over light. And for three days... It looks as if the world will always be under the reign of sin and death because human beings will always live according to the flesh. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us, not simply to die, but also to rise again. And in his resurrection, in the resurrection of Jesus, the spirit triumphs over flesh. And what God did in a picture in the flood, cut off flesh from the earth. God begins to do in the resurrection of Jesus. Because in Jesus we have a man who has lived beyond death, who now lives beyond flesh, beyond the vulnerabilities of flesh. He now lives fully in the spirit, in what Paul calls a spiritual body. He won't be subject to death ever again. He won't be tempted even to live in the fear of death. He never did live in the fear of death. He never did live in the fear of hurt or harm. But now the temptation is gone because He's living in the Spirit. Fully in the Spirit. And that risen Christ, that risen Word made flesh, shares His Spirit with us. And because of that, He plants in human flesh the life of the Spirit. He plants in your flesh the life of the Spirit. You're not where Jesus is. You're going to die. Death is not behind you. Death is ahead of you. You're subject to all the vulnerabilities and all the attacks and all the wounds that the world can heap upon you. You're still vulnerable to that. And you're still tempted, and you often fail to resist the temptation. You're often tempted to react the way the flesh would react. You're tempted to live according to the flesh. To retaliate. To recoil. To shrink back. But in your flesh, in your vulnerable and limited flesh, in your mortal flesh, in your sinful flesh... God, by His Spirit, has planted the life of the Spirit. The life of Jesus is working out in you. That's what Paul says in our Galatians reading this morning. I still live in the flesh. I died to the law by the law. And I still live in the flesh, Paul says, but the life I live in the flesh is not a life according to the flesh, but a life that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The life we live in the flesh, together, as God's people, is a life according to the Spirit. And because Jesus has been raised, and because He is on the throne, and because He has poured out His Spirit on us, that life of the Spirit is going to triumph. Flesh will not win over spirit. It might look in your own life as if flesh is winning, that all the instincts of flesh to avoid pain, to lash out against those who cause pain, To seek your own pleasure. All those things are still at work in you. And at times it might look as if that flesh is winning. But it won't. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's the promise of God's coming in flesh. That He's planted within human flesh. The life of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit will be produced. The fruit of the Spirit will flourish. Because of Jesus. And because of the gift of the Spirit. In the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that the word of God, your word, your eternal word by which you created the world, has become flesh, that he took on our limitations and our weakness, that he took on our vulnerability and our mortality, that he even took on the temptations to which we are subject, and in in that condition, he lived a life of perfect obedience and a life of the Spirit. And we thank you that he's given us that life. And we pray that you would give us faith to trust him, to live out that life faithfully. We pray that during this Advent season, you would renew our commitment to live the life of the Spirit, even while we were in the flesh. And we pray this for the sake of your Word made flesh, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.